And as we are starting this morning, I just want to remind you again that we're going through our study through First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. We've entitled this study Days of the King. And this is all part of our survey through the Old Testament. And so today we're going to talk about David and the nations. And we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 8 through chapter 10, as well as chapter 18 through 19 of 1 Chronicles. Now, let's get right into our lesson. We're going to talk about David and the nations. And so far, what we're seeing as we're going through 2 Samuel is everything's going good for David. He's basically wanting to exalt God. He's brought the ark back to Jerusalem. God is giving him victory over his, his enemies. We're definitely going to see that today. So everything is going good. And so we're going to talk about David's interaction with the other nations around him. But in the midst of this discussion about the nations, when we come to chapter 9, we're going to see that David has remembers a promise that he made uh, to Jonathan. And we're going to see the fulfillment of that promise in chapter 9. So let's get right into it. We're not going to read all of these verses together. Uh, we may refer to some of them as we go along. But let's talk about chapter 8, where we're going to see about David's campaigns. He has different campaigns that are taking place. And we're going to see uh, what is the outcome of that. So when we start off with uh, chapter 8, Really, the first verse talks about his campaign against the Philistines. So David attacked the Philistines and completely subdued them. So when he attacked the Philistines, he completely subdued them. Now the chronicler will tell you in chapter uh, 18 that basically he attacked Gath, which he would be familiar with Gath. He would know everything about Gath because he was there. Remember when Ictish had him there when he was running from Saul? But so he completely subdued the Philistines and they were never a problem during his kingdom again. Although we're going to see a little bit later that he had one more skirmish with them, but they're not an issue anymore. They were a thorn in Israel's side before David came along as king. So we see that. We also see, as you get to verse 2, that David defeated Moab. Now remember, David actually, through one of his relatives, is basically, Ruth is related to Moab, and Moab was the one who took care of his mom and dad while he was running from, uh, from Saul. But now David has attacked Moab. So he defeated Moab making them his servants as they brought him tribute. Now, what is tribute? Well, basically, that's a payment. They become a vassal state. That's a payment to the kingdom, basically saying, hey, we're in servitude towards you. Uh, don't attack us. Here, we're giving you this payment. It's kind of like protection money, so to speak, okay? And we see that there. Now, it also tells you that when he defeated Moab, he did something you and I would consider quite heinous. In defeating them, David had every two out of three prisoners killed and enslaved the third. It says in the text, let me just read it to you. It's a little bit more graphic than that. It says, 
Verse 2, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground, and he measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, he measured those to be kept alive. So basically, two out of three were killed. The third was then made a slave or a servant to Israel. He defeated Moab. Now, what happens beyond that is that the text goes and tells you that David's actually going after kingdoms beyond Israel's border. He's going out beyond the normal enemies. What do you mean the normal enemies? Well, the normal enemies were Ammon, Edom, Moab, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Jezubites, and so forth. He's actually going beyond that. So David defeated the Armenian kingdom of Zobah to the north of Damascus. Now Damascus is in what we would know as Syria, but that was all part of the Armenian kingdoms there, which had rose up during the time of David's reign. And David is attacking to that far north, to north of Damascus. That's not even in Israel anymore. So he's up there attacking them and he defeats them. He took many prisoners, if you read the text, to tell you how many foot soldiers he took, how many chariots he took. He took many prisoners and hamstrung the horses with the exception of 100 chariots. Israel was not allowed to have chariots, but David kept 100 for a purpose. And then to incapacitate that army, he hamstrung all the other horses in the kingdom that could be used for their cavalry, okay? So let me just kind of remind you a little bit here. Basically, Israel is a people who fights in the hills. These other kingdoms are armies that fight on the plains. And so because they're armies that fight on the plains, they use chariots most often, or horse soldiers, or cavalries. So he very much defeated them, took thousands as prisoners, hamstrung the horses. Now, they're also really also referred to as Syrians. So he defeated the Syrians when they came to the aid of the kingdom of Zobah. So these other Syrian people who are a part of these Armenian kingdoms decided to come and help Zobah, but David defeated them and killed thousands of them. The Syrians became David's servants, and he planted garrisons in Syria. Now, what is a garrison? Basically, that's an army outpost in that nation that was defeated. Now, we would understand that. So, for instance, after World War II, we stationed troops in Germany. We still have troops in Germany. We stationed them in Italy. We stationed them throughout Europe. Those are called garrisons. We have troops in Japan even now, troops in, in Korea. Those are called garrisons, like what they're doing right here in David's day. Now, it also tells you that when he defeated the, uh, the Syrian kingdoms here, the Armenian kingdoms, he basically, Aramean kingdom, excuse me, David also took shields of gold and a large amount of bronze from their cities. So when he goes, he's not just defeating them, he's getting resources. 
And notice the kind of resources that he's getting. He's getting gold, and in particular, these guys had shields of gold, and a large amount of bronze. Now, we're going to see later, as we get further into our study through these books, that he has a purpose for these shields and a purpose for this gold. Now, he dedicated everything to the Lord. We'll see that in a little bit later. So the king of the Armenian, the Aramean kingdom of Tol, sent tribute through his son and became David's vassal. So one of these kingdoms, sort of like what we see in Philistia, they're, a con they're basically an alliance of kingdoms that, are, that are, are together. One of the kings decides, I'm not going to have David come here and wipe us out. I'll do what he says. And so he sends tribute with his son to David, and he becomes a vassal, basically sending a yearly tribute to David to make sure that David doesn't come and wipe him out. Now, again, the text will tell you at the end of chapter 8 that all of the treasures that David received from the nations were dedicated to the Lord. So everything that they were receiving from these nations as far as tribute, gold, silver, bronze, all of those things were basically then brought into the storehouse of God's house and basically all the treasures were basically dedicated to the Lord. And it says here that David made a name for himself when he killed 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. So David became famous because of killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Now, I have to make an interesting point to you here. When you go to the Chronicles and they discuss this very same thing, they tell you that it was Abashi, son of Joab, excuse me, brother of Joab, that killed the 18,000. He was commander of the Israeli troops at that time and that he killed the 18,000. How do we reconcile that? Well, it's very easy. We know that David himself physically didn't kill the 18,000. It's David as the head of the Israeli troops killing the 18,000. The chronicler goes a little bit more specific in telling you that the commander of the army at that time was Abashi. So there's no conflict there in what's going on. David is the king. He defeated, but his commander at that time over those troops that won that victory in the Valley of Salt was Abashi. So that's why you see two different things going on there between Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Now, it also tells us towards the end of chapter 8 that he placed garrisons throughout Edom as they became David's servants. So again, you got Moab that's become his servants, Philistia, the Syrians to the north, those Aramean kingdoms. And then now we also see Edom is becoming a servant and a vassal to David. So the writer then goes on at the last part of chapter 8, the last few verses, he lists all those who served David in, the admin in administering the kingdom. So basically what you see in the last few verses there, in verses 14 through 17, is a list of all the officials from those Joab who heads up the army to all of the officials, the high priest and so forth, within the administration of David's 
kingdom. We see that list both in Samuel, 2 Samuel, as well as in 1 Chronicles. And that brings us to the end of chapter 8. So now we get to chapter 9. And what's referred to here is only found in 2 Samuel. You are not going to find it in Chronicles. Chronicles does not discuss what's going to happen here with regards to Saul's house. David shows kindness to Saul's house. So we come now to chapter 9, and there's only 13 verses here, but it's a powerful story, okay? Powerful story. So at the beginning of chapter 9, David inquired if there was anyone left in Saul's house that he could show kindness to. So in all of this victory that's taking place, in all of this establishing of his kingdom, David is in Jerusalem. He's probably chilling in his palace. He's remembering the days of old. And it sounds like he's remembering a covenant he made. And so he says, is there anyone left that in Saul's house? Now, he does have someone left in Saul's house in his own family. That is Michal, his wife, but they're on the outs, if you remember. But he wanted to show kindness to someone. Why? Well, he wanted to do this because of his covenant with Jonathan. Remember, he and Jonathan were close. They loved each other like brothers. And they made a covenant with each other. And, and, and in fact, Jonathan made a covenant with David that he would show kindness to his house when he became king. And of course, David made that covenant. And so David is remembering that covenant here. And he's wondering, is there not somebody that I could show kindness to? So that I can fulfill my commitment, so to speak, with Jonathan. And so they tell him about a servant of Saul named Ziba. Okay? So David made inquiry of Saul's servant Ziba concerning the house of Saul. So basically it was decided, well, the only one who would know what's going on with the house of Saul would be one of his servants, one of his chief servants. So they bring in this guy Ziba, who was one of the chief servants, and he comes before the king, and of course all the formalities and so forth. And he inquires, is there not somebody in Saul's household that I can show kindness to? Well, Ziba informed David of a son of Jonathan named Meshivosheth, who was lame. Now remember, we saw that story earlier when we were talking about David and uh, so forth and during the Civil War period in Oshibosheth. Now we're at the point we heard a little bit of a story about Meshibosheth and how he became lame. Well, now we're going to see this Meshibosheth being mentioned here. And it's interesting that Ziba mentions that this is a child, this is a son of Jonathan. And the text will tell you that he was only five years old when Saul and his sons were killed in battle. So he was only an infant, a toddler, five years old, but he was lame. But it's interesting to me when you read the text, he's in somebody's out, somebody else's household. Ziba, the servant of Saul, is not caring for him at this point. 
So David had Meshivasheth brought to him. So he sends out somebody to go get him. So they know where he's at, what house he's staying in, or what household. It's not a house in Jerusalem, so to speak, but he knows where this person is, and he sends out people to go get him. So that's got to be a scary thing. You know, you're hanging out there, you're lame. By this point, he's pretty old, and you find out the king wants you, which would be a terrifying thing because you know that your family was trying to kill this king. All right? So Meshibosheth, when he comes before the king, Meshibosheth prostrated himself before David. So when he comes in, prostrate means he falls on the ground on his face before the king. Why do you want to talk to me? You know, what, do we, what have I, you know, so he's, he's there in fear before the king. Now what happens is, it's very interesting, and it, it, it's very much reflective of the heart of David. Verse 7 says, and so David said to him, do not fear, for I will show surely, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore you to all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Okay? Continually. So he told Meshibosheth not to fear and that all his grandfather's land would be restored to him. Basically what David is doing is, is he's saying, don't be afraid of me. It's because of your dad. And it's because of the covenant I've made with your dad. And because of that, you're going to get all of the things that your grandfather had. All of his land will be restored rightfully to you. All that he had. And you're going to eat at my table continually. So, and here's how Meshivashef answered. You and I would be like, yeah, wow, all right. Well, that's not how Meshivashef answered. He answered, if you look there, verse 8, he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Really? Well, it's called humility. He's humbling himself, even though he's being honored, he's humbling himself before the king. So he humbled himself and considered himself not worthy. That's what's taking place here. Okay? Now, it's interesting what happens now is, and only the king can do it, David then made Ziba and his household servants to Moshibosheth and his family. We find out in the text that Meshivasheth has a son. And so basically he's returning all of the property and the land and the holdings of Saul to Meshivasheth, his grandson, and he says to Ziba, who was the servant of Saul, you are now Meshivasheth's servant, and your household, that is your servants and your sons, will serve Meshivasheth. Wow. Can he do that? Yep, he does that. And he says, you are to take care of him, but Meshibosheth is going to eat at my table every day. So Meshibosheth was also to continually eat at the king's table. Now, let me remind you of something. Remember when he took Jerusalem? There was a saying 
that the lame and the blind would not enter the palace. And a lot of people have taken that to mean that the lame and the blind were not allowed in Jerusalem. That is not what the text is saying. I've told you that he was referring to the Jezebites. They would not enter into the palace because, quote, their lame and blind would repel David, and David defeated them. Here you have someone who is, going, who is lame, that is the son of Jonathan, who is going to eat at David's table every day. Now, when I talk about eating at his table, I'm not talking about the kitchen table. We're talking about eating in a banquet hall with the king and whoever else is invited there. One of the people who would be continually invited there is Meshivashef. So I'm telling you, it's not that the lame and the blind weren't allowed in the palace. It's that the Jesuits weren't allowed in the palace because of what they said concerning David taking Jerusalem. Now we come to chapter 10. And this is going to be, again, very interesting here because now we're back to David and his interaction with the nations. Now remember... We've already seen in chapter 8 that he subdued the Philistines. He's subdued Moab. He has subdued to the north the Aramean kingdoms of Syria. So the Syrians are subdued. And he has subdued Edom. Now there is another kin to Israel here that has not been mentioned. And that's Ammon. Well, when you come to chapter 10... It's going to talk to you about Ammon. And it's going to spend a little bit of time here. And the war with Ammon will be discussed further in the chapters ahead. But we're only going to talk about the war with Ammon up to chapter 10, verse 19. Okay? So let's talk about Ammon. All right? So when Nahash, the king of Ammon, died, David went to show kindness to his son. Now, I just want to remind you that this Nahash is not the same Nahash who did war with Israel when Saul first became king. There's no way that this is the same Nahash. He would have to be really old. But this is probably another Nahash, maybe Nahash the fifth or sixth or seventh or something. Well, when this particular Nahash, who was king of Ammon, died, David wanted to show kindness to his son, Hunan, okay? He wanted to show kindness to his son. He wanted to comfort him in his grief, so to speak. Basically, it's a diplomatic thing that's going on here. So he sends messengers. So David sent messengers to comfort the son in the death of his father, okay? In the death of his father. So he sends messengers, to send comfort from Israel. Well, there's a problem. If you read the text, chapter 10, that doesn't go smoothly. Why? Well, the new king was stirred to humiliate David's servants and send them away. What do you mean humiliate? Well, let me read you what it says here. Okay? Verse 3, chapter 10, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hunan, their lord, do you think David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David rather not sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Now here's what he did. Then Hunan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards. 
All right, so they got a beard. He shaves off half their beards, all right? That's not it. Cuts off their garments in the middle at the buttocks. So basically, they're wearing garments of some type, probably robes or whatever. He cuts them off in the middle so that their, their, behinds, are, their, their behinds are showing naked, okay? All of it, and sent them away that way. You're saying, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. That was a pretty humiliating thing to have half your beard shaved off and to have your garments so that you're basically walking home with your butt hanging out. That's what's going on here, okay? That's what's going on here. Now, what is interesting to me is what happens next. When you read the next verse, all right, verse 5 says, when, David, when they told David, they sent... He sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed, of course. And the king said, wait in Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now you come to verse 6. And when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians. All right, I'm just going to point out a few things to you. Okay, here it is. Number one, when David heard, he had the men wait in Jericho until their beards returned. So basically, to no, not further humiliate them, Jericho, of course, is several, 10 or more miles, 12 miles or more, whatever, outside of Jerusalem. He has them stay in Jericho until their beards grow back. All right? So that that way they don't come to the kingdom humiliated. All right? Then the people of Ammon... When the people of Ammon saw that they had angered Israel, they hired the Syrians. Now that to me, can I re be honest with you, when I'm reading verse 6, it's like, hello, did you not know that this was going to happen? When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive, did you not think that that was going to make, yourself, make them repulsive by humiliating David's servants that way? Did you not think about that? Oh, I think we made him mad. That's kind of what the text is saying here. So what do they do? They go and hire the Syrians. Really smart thing to do too. They're the ones who just got beat by David. Those Aramean kingdoms in Syria. But they hire them, okay? They hire them. So when David heard that Ammon hired the Syrians, he sent Joab with the, with the army of Israel. So he sent Joab, go take care of these guys with the mighty men. So Ammon, with their Syrian allies, arranged themselves to battle Israel. So they arranged themselves to battle Israel. Now, it's interesting. What happens here is really interesting. It kind of so shows you the superiority of, Israeli, of the Israeli army at this point under the command of Joab. Joab saw that the battle line was against Israel. So he arranged the best of Israel to fight against Syria. So Joab, he's, he's basically looking across the battlefield and sees, okay, there's the Syrians, there's Ammon, Oh, it's not going to be good the way they're arranged to it. So he decides, okay, we're going to try this. So he arranges the best of, of 
Israel, of the mighty men of Israel, he arranges the best of his army to fight against the Syrians under the command of his brother Abashi. And then, here's what he then does. He places the, excuse me, he arranged he to fight the Syrians. He placed the rest of the troops under his brother's command against Ammon. So Abashi would take the rest of those Israeli troops and go against Ammon. He then would take the best and go against the Syrians. Okay? And then he kind of makes an arrangement. If things don't go well with me, you come and help me. If things don't go well with you, I will come and help you. And that's their arrangement. Okay? That's their arrangement. What happens is really interesting. And it tells you how much God was with his, with his people. When they engaged in battle, the Syrians fled, which in turn caused the Ammon to flee. So what ends up happening here is, is when you read the text in chapter 10, the battle begins, the best, they go against the Syrians. They're not doing well, so they retreat. They're running. The battle's not going their way. When Ammon sees that their Syrian allies hightail it, Ammon then runs from Israel back to their cities. So here they are. Israel is facing this superior force, but Israel gets the victory. Let's go on. The Syrians then regroup, and David met them in battle and destroyed them. So in their retreat, they go back, they decide to regroup and fight against Israel again. Well, David wipes them out. This caused the Syrian kings to make peace with Israel, and they did not help Ammon again. F smart guys, right? Well, <laughs> hey David, we're sorry. We shouldn't have helped them. Can we make peace with you? I know a little bit more tribute. They make peace and they decide never to help Ammon again. And thus ends chapter 10 of 1st, excuse me, of 2nd Samuel and 1st Chronicles chapter 19. Now you're saying, well, what happened with Ammon? Well, that story is going to continue on. And we're going to get to that next week when we get into Lesson 21. But Lesson 21 is really a turning point in David's kingdom. Because everything up to this point has been going well. You say, yeah, but a lot of it has been David waiting to be king. Now he's king and everything's going well. He's winning victories. Yes, but then when you come to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and it's only going to be in 2 Samuel that we hear this story. The chronicler does not refer to this. In fact, the chronicler is going to be silent for a while until David takes his census. So now our focus is going to be just back to 2 Samuel. And we're going to see that David falls into sin. And the consequences to David and his family and his kingdom are devastating. And it all starts next week when we get into chapter 11.